You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When life gives us a financial windfall, first comes gratitude, then comes financial planning, because being empowered with our money is everything. To learn more, visit planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I am here to say, after decades of doing this work, there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways. And if we can relieve ourselves of that pressure of trying to do it right, we will actually end up doing it better. Hey, everybody. I'm Jean Chatsky. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. So I don't know about you, but I like to come prepared when I am asked to give a speech. Sometimes, rarely, I get away with a couple of bullet points on note cards, but I gotta tell you, I'm gonna be honest, mostly that does not work for me. Mostly, I like to have things written out. I don't even look at them necessarily, but I just know that they're there. It's a little bit of a security blanket. It makes me comfortable, and I think that that goes back to my Today Show days, when I started working on the Today Show, the name of the game was to take a a story out of our magazine. Smart Money Magazine was where I was when I started, and it was an eight-page story, and condense it into roughly three to four minutes. So I had this very elaborate process that I would go through where I would write out longhand the points that I wanted to make, then I would boil them down into fewer points, then I would practice. Usually I would practice driving myself into work from the suburbs of New York into Manhattan, and I would practice in my car. And this was in the day before everybody had a cell phone in their car. And so I would just sit there and chit-chat to myself. People would look at me when I got stopped at a light like I was insane. But that was how I did it. And as a result, I think I'm still kind of reliant on a piece of paper. But the thing is, when we're speaking, sometimes, sometimes we don't have time to get prepared at all. Sometimes we are just asked to get up and say a few words at a conference or a birthday party or a wedding. And it can be All too easy to just clam up, to forget what you're supposed to say, to feel like you could have done a lot better after the fact. The problem is that being able to speak confidently, sometimes on the fly, is really important at work, especially when so many of us have big goals. Recent research from Gallup found that less than half of today's employees feel confident that they can reach the highest level they wish to at their jobs. So how can we make sure the ideas we are hoping to express come across that way in 
any situation, from a conference call to an auditorium. Matt Abrahams is an expert on sounding confident when speaking on the fly. He's the author of the best-selling book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You Are Put on the Spot. He's also the host of the popular podcast by the same name, A Lecturer in Organizational Behavior at Stanford University's Graduate School of Business and a keynote speaker whose talks have been viewed millions of times. Matt, thanks for being here. Welcome. Gene, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. And I myself have practiced a number of times in my car, in my shower, while I'm out running. So I totally understand what you're talking about. Practice is good. Even when I'm giving a talk that I have given many, many times, I will still go over it in the hotel room before I go give it because I think it's really important just to remember what you're trying to do. But what is it about public speaking? Why is it still so scary for so many people? I think it's part of the human condition. I think it's ingrained in us. Whenever we put ourselves at risk, and when I'm saying at risk, I'm talking about our status relative to others. If I make a mistake, I can embarrass myself. That can change the way people view me. Back when our species was evolving, it literally meant uh, we were at jeopardy of getting resources, shelter, food, reproduction. So it's built into who we are. That doesn't mean we can't learn to manage it and do some things to make ourselves feel more comfortable. Certainly practice is one way. There are a whole slew of other things that we can do to help ourselves feel more confident and more importantly, appear more confident for the audiences we present It's true. It's the appearance of being confident that's the thing. So I did the Today Show for 25 years. And for the first two of those years, I was physically ill by the time I got to the studio, like literally had to run to the restroom, right? Ill. And over time, it just kind of went away. But the thing is, I don't think people realized it right? I appeared as if I knew what I was doing. Were you always a confident speaker or has it taken you a long time to become good at this? Oh, I certainly had to work at it. And by the way, I enjoyed watching you on the Today Show and you always did look comfortable and confident. (laughs) And I think it highlights a big difference that we, we call it the perception gap, the feel versus what's real, right? What we experience, others don't necessarily see. Our audiences only see what we show them. They don't know what we could have said, should have said, what, how we're feeling internally. So What I encourage all of my students to do is to digitally record themselves. And when they watch them, they realize that how they felt and how they appear are different. And that begins to help people feel more confident. And that's what was helpful to me early in my career where I was very nervous. I used recording myself. I used some of the other techniques that I've written about and studied to help myself feel more comfortable and confident. But I'll share with you, and it's probably true for you still to this day, there are situations that will still make me nervous. It's not as much. It's not as intense. Hence, but it does still happen. Yeah, it still happens to me too. It has a lot to do with the title of the group that I'm talking to. I will vividly remember the very first time I went out to give a talk to something, it was called the Economics Club of, I think, Greater Columbus, maybe. Right. And I got a C in economics when I was in college. <laughs> I, I like that was not easy for me. I feel like I've learned a lot of economics on the job, but in the classroom, not my thing. And I was really petrified until I got there and I realized that it was just a fancy word for the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> 
And, and then I was like, oh, okay, I got this. You own the hardware store and you own the beauty salon. I can do this. And so I think some of it is perception. So what do you say to somebody who says public speaking is not my thing or I could never do that? How important is being able to express yourself in a meeting or a bigger room or a really big room to our overarching careers and life goals? I think the ability to communicate confidently and clearly is critical to success, both in business and in our personal lives. And there's a whole bunch of research that suggests that. When you ask employers, what is one of the top skills that breeds success in an organization? Communication, if not number one, is always two or three. When you ask people what really makes a difference in their interpersonal relationships, communication is critical. And many of us can be very intimidated by that, either by past experience or personality. Yet I'm here to tell you that with work and some coaching and some reflection, we can all get better at our communication. We can work to be more confident in our communication. So let's talk about some of those tips. Where do you begin to get a handle on the problem and then work through the steps to come to a place where you feel like you're saying what you want to say when you want to say it. Yeah. And it is a process and it's a process that that everybody goes through at different paces, but you can and, and will get better if you invest in it. So when it comes to speaking in the moment, spontaneous speaking, answering questions, giving feedback, making small talk, there's a six-step methodology that I've put together over the years. The six steps divide into two major categories, mindset and messaging. When it comes to mindset, you have to start with anxiety management. There are things we can do to manage anxiety, both the symptoms, which is what you feel and others see, but also the sources, the things that initiate and exacerbate anxiety. From there, we need to change how we perceive what we're trying to do. Many of us, when we communicate, we want to do it right. We want to be perfect in our communication. And I am here to say, after decades of doing this work, there is no right way to communicate. There are better ways and worse ways. And if we can relieve ourselves of that pressure of trying to do it right, we will actually end up doing it better. It has to do with cognitive load. When I'm so worried about doing it right, I burden myself so much that I don't do it as well as I could. After that, we have to see these as opportunities. Many of us, when I say, hey, I'm going to ask you some questions, people get really nervous, defensive, they feel threatened. If we see these situations as opportunities to learn, to expand, to collaborate, it changes the entire dynamic. And then the final step in the mindset piece is all about listening. I know as somebody yourself who interviews people, you know how important listening is. If we listen well, it enables us to communicate more appropriately, to do what's needed in the moment. And then once we've handled those mindset pieces, we then have to think about how we actually structure and package our messages. And I'm a huge fan of frameworks. And if you use the right frameworks, it gets us to the sixth step, which is about focus. It helps us be concise. The most precious commodity in my mind in the world today is attention. Our attention is constantly pulled in different directions. The way we break through that is being focused and clear in our messaging. So those six steps, mindset and messaging, is how you get better at communicating in the moment. Let's unpack that just a little bit because there was a lot in that paragraph. And let's talk about mindset first. Sure. When you are asked to 
say something in the moment or with preparation, and you find yourself anxious or really struggling with a feeling that you're just not going to say the right thing. How do you get yourself beyond it? And I know it's not just the picture people in their underwear, right? It's <laughs> it's how do you get yourself to a point where you can quiet your nerves so that you can focus your thoughts? So let me share a few things that we can do. So when it comes to the anxiety that comes up when that situation happens, a few things. One, deep belly breathing is one of the best things you can do to just slow down the autonomic nervous system's responses. It slows down the heart rate. It slows down your speaking rate. It lowers your pitch and tone. And when I mean deep belly breaths, I'm talking about the things you would do if you've ever done yoga or if you've ever done Tai Chi, where you're really filling the lower abdomen. And the key is actually to make your exhalation twice as long as your inhalation. So if it's a three count in, it's a six count out. And doing that just two or three times can have that wonderful effect of calming down your symptoms. The next thing to do to really get at what you're talking about psychologically is to remind yourself that you are in service of your audience. You are there to help them. Often when you're put on the spot, people want to hear from you. They want to understand your answer. They want to receive your feedback. They want to get to know you in small talk situations. And if you remind yourself it's not about you, it's about them, it changes it. It's a, it's a way of refocusing that spotlight that we often feel is on us and shining it on the other people. So if you remind yourself you have value to bring, it really helps. This is such a good point. I was having this conversation with my mother and my husband over lunch just Saturday, and my mother was reminding us that when I was, gosh, I guess I was in high school, my mother was amazing and is amazing, but she reinvented herself every time my father, who was an academic, moved us someplace else across the country. And we had landed in Wheeling, West Virginia, and she had gotten a job as she's an educator, she had gotten a job running a gifted and talented program for high school students. So they sent her to Princeton to get training, and then they said, okay, go raise money for this program. And she had to go out and talk to all these people in the community about why they should give money to this program at a local college. And she was a wreck. And my father, who gave lectures for a living, said, just talk. Just talk to them. You know everything. They don't know anything. Whatever you tell them is going to be new information to them. And I think that's a really important point. Even if you don't say it perfectly, you know more than your audience does. Absolutely. Your, your father was very wise in that advice. That's exactly right. People want to hear from you. You are asked to speak because you know something that they don't. And you can really take solace in that. And what's amazing is when you begin to see the positive response of the audience, when you're sharing something that's valuable to them, then you feel more comfortable and confident in that moment. And if you can make it more conversational, there's a bunch of research, some that I was involved with in graduate school that says, if you make it more conversational rather than a performance, that also makes it easier. So what does that mean? Maybe you start with a question or you ask people to imagine what it would be like. And then all of a sudden we are having a conversation and I'm not performing for you because when I perform, there's a right way, there's a wrong way, the, all the lights are on me. But the conversation makes it easier for us to feel comfortable. Any other mindset hacks before we go on to messaging? 
There are many that I could share. I am a huge fan of Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset as well as improvisation, and they both have something to teach us. In Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, that is when we reach obstacles or don't fulfill the goals that we have, it's not about us. It's not innate to who we are. We can just work harder and and get more guidance and help, and we can end up doing better. One of the key things she talks about is this not yet mindset. Many of us, when we fail in something or we don't achieve the level that we wanted, we think, oh, that's it. I'm never going to be able to do it or it's so hard. We can just remind ourselves that not yet. We're not ready for that yet. We can come back to it with some work, with some observation. We can get better. And I think when it comes to speaking, many of us might have had a negative experience and then just say, it's not for me. I'm done. And if we remind ourselves (laughs) not yet, then that can help. And then there's this notion from improvisation of yes and. Yes and is all about embracing what happens. So when somebody asks me a question, even if it's a challenging question, instead of shirking back, we say, yes, I'm going to answer that. And I'm even going to tell you more. Or when somebody asks for feedback, you say, yes, of course, I'm going to give you some feedback. So it's that stepping into that moment that can actually build confidence. One of the ways we initiate and can feel more comfortable is to start. And I'm going to sneak one more in. I learned this from my kid's basketball coach. When my kid was like 10 years old, he had an amazing basketball coach. And he introduced me to something that I later learned that Duke coach Mike Krzyzewski taught all of his players, which is next play. Many of us, when we make a mistake in our communication, we ruminate, we beat ourselves up, we get so caught up in it that we miss the opportunity to continue the conversation or to fix what just happened. The idea of next play, if you're an athlete and you make a mistake, you've got to move on to the next play because otherwise it's happened and you weren't part of it. And even if you do something well, next play factors in. So by addressing not yet, yes and and next play, you change the way you approach your communication and it can really help you feel better in the moment. It's so true. A yes and reminds me too of the way to handle things when you don't really know the answer right? I learned a long time ago, I'm not going to bullshit, right? I'm talking about people's money. And so if I don't know the answer, I will tell them I'm going to have to research that and come back to you. But I also learned that sometimes when you have points that you want to make, you can just make them no matter what the question is. That people can ask you something and you can say, well, that's really an interesting question. But did you ever think about this and just talk about the thing that you want to talk about despite the fact that that's really not where they were trying to take you? So there are lots of different ways to get around it. All right. So I've moved on a little bit to the messaging. But when it comes to the messaging, the title of your book, which I know is a phenomenal hit, throws me a little bit. And the title of your best-selling book is Think Faster, Talk Smarter, which is also the title of your podcast. I find I have to think slower in order to talk smarter. So when you say think faster, what do you mean? 
Yeah, so that's a very good question. So when I'm talking about thinking faster, what I'm talking about is pattern recognition. So when I am in these moments where I have to respond right away, I am trying to connect what I have done before, either in the preparation I've done. And this is one of those counterintuitive facts that you can actually prepare to be spontaneous, just like an athlete trains and drills so that when they're in the sport, they can do whatever's needed in the moment. So what we're trying to do is recognize certain patterns that I see, maybe through my listening, maybe through how you worded the question. And I'm trying to connect those to things I've done in the past or things I, I know about the future. So we need to do that rather quickly. What many people do, and I agree that there is value in really being reflective, but what many people do is they get caught in this doom loop of they want to say something and then they judge it. And they say, no, that's not appropriate. Or I want to do this and now oh, I could say it differently. And that type of thinking slower actually inhibits us. So I appreciate the opportunity to clarify. For me, it's about pattern recognition, if you will, connecting the dots that lead me to where I need to go next. When we're talking about where we want to go next and we're talking about messaging and saying, again, what you want to say when you want to say it, which is a line from one of my very favorite movies, You've Got Mail. And Meg Ryan is struggling because she gets caught up in these situations where she is trying to put somebody in their place, actually, and she falls apart. But because she's been thinking about it, or perhaps because she's been coached by Tom Hanks, who she doesn't really realize is Tom Hanks, she has this opportunity to put Tom Hanks in his place, and she does it beautifully and unkindly, and then feels terrible about it afterwards. But this idea of being able to get your messages across, the points that you're trying to make, that's a very difficult one for a lot of people. And I think for me, it's why I still like to have my notes on the stage. Right. And I think there are other ways to accomplish the goal that you're trying to achieve. And by the way, I love that movie as well. We're showing our vintage, though, in, in sharing that memory. We are. <laughs> for sure. But I believe very much in frameworks. And a framework or structure is simply a logical connection of ideas. It's like a recipe. And so if I have a framework at the ready, it helps me figure out how I'm going to say what I need to say. And again, as I mentioned earlier, it makes it more concise. So all I have to do is think about what I put into that framework. In other words, I've halved my burden. Let me give you an example. My favorite structure in the whole world is three simple questions. What, so what, now what? If I answer those three questions, I have a logical, concise, and clear message. The what is my idea could be my product, my service, my position on an issue. The so what is why is it important and relevant to you? And then the now what is what comes next? Maybe I'm going to do a demonstration or I'm going to take your questions. So by simply answering those three questions, it positions me well to package my information and it helps me remember. Let me give you an example of an in-the-moment use of this. Let's say we're talking and you ask me for feedback. We just came out of a meeting and you say, hey, Matt, how do you think that went? Here's what I could do. I could say the what, which is my feedback. I thought it went really well, Gene, except when you talked about the implementation plan. You spoke a little quickly and didn't give as many examples as you did in the other parts of the meeting. That's my what. When you speak quickly without a lot of examples, people might think you're not as prepared on that topic area. That's the so what. What I'd like you to do next time is to slow down and use example A and example B the next time you talk about the implementation plan. 
That's the now what. So the structure actually guides me through what I'm going to say. So all I have to do is think about how did that meeting go? I don't have to think about how am I going to say it. So for many people who like to prepare a lot, having a structure gives you a roadmap so that you know where you're going. It doesn't mean you know every single word you're going to say, but you know in general where you're going, and that makes it easier for you and for your audience. Do you think it's important to telegraph your structure to your audience before you go through things? That's a great question, and I'm going to frustrate you like I frustrate my MBA students because I'm going to answer, it depends. It depends on what your goal is. So if I am trying to educate you on some very specific things, we have research that suggests signaling where you're going puts your audience at ease. So they don't actually have to be worried about where are we going and how are we getting there. However, there are times where you might want to generate some curiosity. Curiosity is a great way to get engagement. You might want to uncover something. There might be a purpose for revealing things as you go, in which case making your structure explicit can work against that. So it really depends on your goal and what you're thinking is best for your audience relative to your topic. This is a show, as my audience knows, about women. This is also a show about money. We're going to bring this conversation to a point where we talk about women and money. But before we do that, we're going to take a very quick break. Hey, Her Money family, here's a fun announcement. Our 400th episode is coming up. Can you believe it? And I want you to call in to ask me anything. Do you have questions about your financial life, your retirement, your kids, your house? What about if you and your partner are splitting bills fairly? I want to talk about every single bit of it. So Email us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Send your question, but also send your details how to get in touch with you because we want to get you on the air. Can't wait. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. We save and invest for our financial futures because we know that even though the future may be uncertain, planning is everything. Sometimes in life, we enjoy financial windfalls, too. We may gain an inheritance, liquidate a business, or receive a monetary gift or a settlement. Even in these days of more mega-million jackpots than ever, we may win the lottery. When this happens, we all want to make the most out of every dollar we've been given. And we can. Learn more at planefe.com slash hermoney and schedule your complimentary wealth checkup today. We're back with Matt Abrahams, author of the new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter. So, Matt, I told you I want to bring this around to women and to money, but let's start with women. We recently had Allison Fregale on the show. She was talking about the power of weak language and how, for women, using words like maybe and don't you think, despite perceptions to the contrary, actually made them more likable in the workplace. So as we're talking about public speaking, how would you say the choice of words fits in specifically for women? I think word choice is really, really important. I've been very fortunate on my podcast, Think Fast, Talk Smart, to talk to many people who have very strong opinions and ideas and research on wording, including neurolinguists, which I wish was a field when I was younger because I would have studied it for sure. So I call this hedging language. Those who study it call it hedging language, language that 
makes you sound less definitive. And in interpersonal communication, especially where there are power and status issues at play, hedging language can actually serve a good purpose. It can lower your status. It can raise your status in certain situations. When you are the sole focus of attention, you are on a stage or in the frame if we're doing a virtual communication, hedging language can actually work against you. So we need to be thinking about the context and the environment and what I'm trying to accomplish. So you tell me, if I am a a senior leader on a stage, male or female, and I say, I kind of sort of think we should do this versus we should do this, sounds very different. And if I'm trying to lead an organization or lead a charge for a particular cause, language choice does matter. So we need to be mindful of it. We just need to be strategic. The class I teach at Stanford's Business School is called strategic communication. And one of the levers that we have to pull is the language we use. Here's my point in all of this. Many of us, when we communicate, communicate out of habit. We do what we have always done. What I'm all about is turning habits into choices. I'm okay if you use hedging language, if you choose to use hedging language in a specific situation because you think there's a reason to do it. If you're just doing it because that's what you've always done, then I encourage you to become more sensitive to the words you use. So it's all about turning habits into choices and thinking about the context and the implications of your language in that context. You brought up a really good point, which is the environment in which you're making these statements. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned the box, which is Zoom, right? Zoom is the box or or a webinar is the box. How did COVID change the way that effective communication works best? Yeah. So the transition to virtual communication changed a a lot of things. I think the the biggest thing it did is it reduced some of the formality that we would have. People were living in their and working in their environments and formality has been reduced. And I, as somebody who used to study the impact of conversation on anxiety, find it actually a great thing. Certainly there are times we have to be more formal and there are certain boundaries to the informality we have for sure, but it has definitely become more informal. Additionally, it highlighted for all of us the importance of being concise and the importance of being engaging. When we are physically present with somebody, we can interact in a different way. We can read cues in a different way, and and therefore we can make adjustments differently. When we are virtual, think about this, that we are using perhaps the most creative tool humanity has ever created, our, our systems, our phones, our laptops, et cetera, and we are expecting people to just stay focused on us. It's pretty unreasonable. So we have to be concise, clear, and engaging. And there are techniques for engagement that I think we have to dial up a bit when we're virtual versus when we're in person. So for example, as a speaker in person, I can get you physically engaged. I can take a poll. I can ask you questions. But when I'm virtual, I have to do that much more purposefully. I have to leverage some of the tools. So I might have you do one of those reaction buttons or type something into the chat or use a breakout room because I have to keep you physically involved. Otherwise, you're going to go check your email or your texts, et cetera. So I have to keep you physically involved. I also have to keep you mentally involved. So I have to use things like analogies, again, asking questions. Questions. I can use what I call time traveling language. I can ask you to imagine or picture this. That causes you to actually see it in your mind's eye. These are things that I really have to do more purposefully and more frequently when virtual because it is so easy to get distracted by something else on the very same device I'm using to connect with you. When we are thinking specifically about 
types of language and types of conversations that we're having in life. The second half of your book is basically devoted to this, to being able to speak confidently when we're negotiating for a raise or negotiating with a car salesman on the price of a car. How do we think of these things? And let's talk about the raise question, because for many women who still are faced with a a pervasive gender wage gap, it's an issue. And we are told time and again, you don't ask. You, If you asked, you would get. But, But I know that that's not true. You can ask and you can sometimes not receive what you're asking for. How do you best frame these conversations and what are the right words to use? Well, I'm not sure there are right words. I think there are better words than other words. But again, I would encourage everybody to first, whenever you communicate, regardless of you're asking for a raise or just trying to communicate a point, you should have a clear goal in mind. And that goal has three parts. Know, feel, do. What do I want the person to know? How do I want them to feel? And what do I want them to do? So if I'm asking for a raise, I want people to know why I think that's justified. My past experience, the relative hierarchy around me, that is somebody else is promoted, I've done more work. So what do we want them to know? And we should catalog that information in advance. Stockpiling is a great way to prepare to be spontaneous. How do you want the person to feel? Do you want them to feel motivated? Do you want them to feel confident in making this decision? Do you want them to feel concerned that if they don't make that decision that you might leave or you might express concern in other ways? And then what specifically do you want them to do? Is it that you just want to raise or that you want to have an opportunity to get a performance review from which a raise is possible? Be very specific. So having that goal helps. Once you have that goal, you then have to think of what's the best framework. I, again, think in a, in a situation where you're asking for something at work, what, so what, now what is a great way to do it, as I mentioned before. What is what it is you're asking for and why you think you deserve it. The so what is the specifics of the benefits of that particular raise or promotion. And then finally, the now what can paint a picture of what you could do if you had that raise or that position for the company. So thinking through your content in that way is very helpful. It is also helpful to think about what types of resistance and hesitation and concern you might get. Somebody might say it's not appropriate in our cycle of review, or somebody might say, if I promote you or give you a raise, what does that mean for the other person? I'm not saying these are legitimate. I'm saying that these are things that might be brought up. And you should think about how might I respond in that situation. I'm going to take us on a tangent here, but here's where a tool like generative AI could help. You could type in, what are some potential resistance or concerns when somebody asks for a mid-year salary increase? And it'll list some, and then you can begin thinking, how would I respond to that? So there's a lot of work that goes into it. I think the right way to do it is to have a clear goal, to then have a structure that you leverage, and then think about areas of concern and hesitation and how you would address those. As you think about the differences between men and women, are there other areas where you think that there are big discrepancies? By and large, all the research that I have read is that the communication 
Techniques that typically are those that women invoke are ones that are better for collaboration and creativity. And so I am often encouraging people to reflect on how can we listen better? How can we include other points of view? How can we paraphrase before we speak? And these are all behaviors that tend to be associated with women. Doesn't mean it's exclusive to women. Men in general tend to speak quickly and longer. And sometimes that can be useful to get things started but not necessarily useful to, to be collaborative. So I encourage people to really reflect on their own nature and their own preferences in speaking, to observe what is appropriate in the environment and try to mimic that, and then find ways to make sure that you don't feel left out. I spend a lot of time talking to people, both men and women, about how do you wedge your point of view into a communication that's already taking place. In our minds, when I, I say an active meeting, many people envision a bunch of men just all talking at once, but that's not always true. But how do you wedge your perspective in? And there are a couple ways to do that. One is to paraphrase something you've heard and just state it and then insert what you need to say. Another way is to ask a question about something that was said and then follow up that question. And a third way is to start with an emotion. That concerns me or I'm excited about that. And then that gives you the floor to speak. So to your question, there are differences, but I think there are ways to benefit from both the traditional female approach to speaking and the traditional male approach to speaking. As we wrap this up, I want to spend just a minute or two on listening, because for me as a journalist, that's been the most important thing, to hear what people are saying and to be able to dig the nuances out of whatever they've said in order to follow up with another question and another question. How do you become the best listener that you can be? I totally agree that listening is critical in any communication situation, planned or spontaneous. The first thing we have to realize is we're not very good at listening. We listen just enough to get the gist of what somebody is saying, and then we begin rehearsing and planning and, and evaluating what's said. I borrow a framework from a colleague of mine at the business school. His name is Collins Dobbs, and he teaches a whole class on crucial conversations. And he has a framework that I think works great for listening that answers your questions. It's three things, pace, space, grace. We have to slow ourselves down. We move so frenetically and so fast that it's hard to listen. You have to slow down. Listening is something that you have to savor and takes time. So we slow down. The second thing we have to do once we've addressed pace is space. And I, I'm not just talking about physical space. As I get older, things are louder and it's harder for me to focus. We might have to move to a quieter place. But I mean, more importantly, mental space. I have to be present. I have to clear my mind so I can really focus on you and what's being said. As I'm listening, I'm trying to understand the bottom line of what you're saying. I'm not just trying to get the high level, but what's the bottom line? What's the crux of what you're saying? And then finally is grace. I have to give myself permission to step back and give you the floor, but I also have to give myself permission to listen to my intuition. What comes up for me when you say a certain thing? And is that intuition something I might want to share with you or not? So pace, space, grace, I think is the right way to learn how to listen better. And then and we have to practice listening. A great way to do it, I encourage everybody who listens to my podcast, when they're done listening to an episode, stop listening and then ask yourself, what was it about? Why was it important? And what can I do with that information? This forces you to listen to the show in a very different way. And it's also a great tool for practicing what, so what, now what, because those three questions are that structure. So you have to practice and you have to give yourself a little pace, space, and grace. 
Matt Abrahams, author of the new book, Think Faster, Talk Smarter, How to Speak Successfully When You're Put on the Spot. Thank you. This was incredibly valuable. Really glad to have you here. I appreciated our conversation. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And we'll be back in just a sec with your mailbag. With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back for our mailbag. My daughter, Julia, is joining us for this. You know, listening to Matt talk, Jules, I always think about high school theater. And I think high school theater and high school speech class, for me, really helped me with the ability to speak off the cuff. Like when I'm speaking off the cuff, my brain just slows down a little bit and the words kind of come out. Does it do that for you? Yeah, but I also have a tendency to word vomit. And then I'm like, (laughs) what did I just say? You know, like I'll be on a client call and then I'll realize I've been talking for three minutes and everybody's starting to look at me on Zoom like, Is she going to wrap it up? But I also think, I don't know if you remember, you probably do, but when I was little, you and daddy would have me write on a notepad what I was going to say before I would call a place. Yes. Like, hi, I'd like to place an order. Or I remember calling the barn. I was a horseback rider and I'd be like, hi, Peggy, it's Julia Chatsky. Can I ride Chip today? Not Smokey? Whatever. But I think that was why I got so good at speaking because I would, like, write it down. And now my girlfriends who are incapable of placing a dinner order, I make them write it down. So lesson learned, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's what I did for the Today Show for years. I wrote it out longhand. And then I would learn it and then I would be able to say it. And it was really helpful. Let's answer some questions. All right. Our first question comes from Brenna. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a longtime fan of your work and would appreciate if you would provide guidance as to whether I should contribute to my employer's traditional or Roth 401ks. As a single 51-year-old, I am behind on retirement savings and now trying to catch up. I had accumulated significant debt due to unemployment and medical issues, which limited my retirement contributions, but the last of my debt was recently paid off. I recently changed jobs and received a 30% pay increase as a result. My salary is $142,000. My current retirement savings is close to $160,000. I am fortunate that my new employer provides an automatic 5% pension and up to a 5% 401k match. I do not own property, but I will co-inherit a Cape Cod home currently valued at $460,000. 
I have been contributing to my new employer's 401k, but recently was told by a financial advisor that doing so is a bad move for high-income earners and that I should switch my contributions to the traditional. The internet seems to be split on this issue, so I'm not sure what to do. I hope to live on less in the future, but the cost of living here in Massachusetts is very high. Do Roth 401ks make sense for high-income earners? Would it be worth it for me to continue to contribute to the Roth until the current tax rate expires in December 2025 and then switch? Thanks, Brenna. So, Brenna, I'm a little bit mixed on this, but before I answer your question, let me just take a step back and explain the difference for anybody who doesn't know the difference between a Roth contribution and a traditional contribution. Whether we are talking about IRAs or 401ks, if you make a traditional contribution, you put in money that is pre-tax and essentially it saves you money on your taxes by doing it that way. But when you take the money out in retirement, then you have to pay income taxes on whatever you are pulling out. When you make a Roth contribution, you are paying the taxes up front. You're not saving money on the taxes now, but when you pull the money out in retirement, you don't owe any additional taxes. And so essentially, If you think that your tax rate is going to be higher in retirement than it is now, then you want to go with the Roth. If you think that your tax rate is going to be lower in retirement than it is now, you want to go with the traditional. And AARP actually has a fantastic calculator on its website where you can just plug in what you think your tax rate is going to be and what your contribution is going to be, and it shows you if you are better off going Roth or going traditional. The wild card here is that we don't know what tax rates are going to be in the future. And personally, I think they're going to be higher. I just look at the amount of debt that we've taken on in this country. I look at the state of the Social Security and Medicare systems, and I have no idea how they would not be higher. And that argues for paying the taxes now and going with the Roth contribution, particularly if you are able to pay the taxes now. Now, there are some financial advisors who say, don't do that, that you will be benefited by putting more money in now because if you're paying the taxes out of your contribution, sometimes it inhibits your ability to make a full contribution. But if you can make a full contribution and you agree with me that you think tax rates are probably going up, I would take advantage of that Roth contribution. The other thing that I would say is I know that you feel that you're behind on retirement, that 5% pension, as long as you work for this company, is going to be a a real lifesaver. So just know that that is going to help you make up some of that difference. And, And thanks for writing. Make sense? Definitely. Good answer. Thank you. You're welcome. Should we get into our next one? Absolutely. All right. Our next question comes to us from Judy. She writes, Hi, her money people. I have just finished as an executor for a friend who left me in charge of her estate. His 
not a big estate, but it wasn't well organized, and I have found myself working on it rather than having time to grieve. I do not want to do that to any of my friends. I'm 71, comfortable, and have no children or family capable of handling an estate. I currently have a trust for my house, a will, Durable's powers of attorney for finances and health. My estate is not large. $1.5 million with the house and retirement funds, and it could be larger or smaller in the future depending on what happens. But after my recent experience, I don't want to push my friends into settling the estate. What I want is a professional executor so my friends are free to celebrate my life and grieve without responsibilities. Is there a professional organization or some way to search for such group? Thanks for your help and for being there. The podcast is a godsend. Oh, well, that's nice, Judy. Look, I totally get it. We lost my stepfather, Julia's step-grandfather, Bob, more than a year ago now. And settling his estate was really a long, long process for his sons. It got really expensive. And so even when you do have family members who are willing to step in and do it, it can just be a lot. And you're right. You can absolutely hire a professional executor. I searched for you for an organization like you're asking for, an organization of professional executors. I couldn't find one, but you don't need a specific executor. You can probably hire your estate planning attorney or somebody from your accounting firm to do this for you. It's not free. States allow executors to charge a fee based on a percentage of the value of the estate. It ranges in Massachusetts. It's about 1.5%, but it's higher in places like Georgia and Texas where it's 25 to 5%. Other states like New York and California, they use a tiered system where a percentage is charged per $100,000 in the estate and the percentage goes down as the value of the estate goes up. But it doesn't sound to me like the cost is necessarily a big worry for you. I would go to the professional in your life that you trust. And if you've got somebody who has set up a trust for you, your wills, your durable power of attorneys, I'd probably start with that person. I don't know how old your estate planning attorney is, but I would make sure that there is a younger person or younger people on the team, just other people who are able to step in if your chosen representative isn't available. But good for you for thinking about this. A lot of people just push these decisions off to the side and wait for the courts to deal with them after they die. So it's nice that you want to give your friends and the people that you're close to time to grieve. I think that's a nice gift, time to grieve and to celebrate your life. Thanks for writing with such a thoughtful question, Judy. And if you've got any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. You can send them our way by emailing us at mailbag at hermoney.com. Thank you, Jules. Thanks for having me. And now we're going to take a quick break. Dive into the heart of crime with Foul Play Crime Series. Immerse yourself in the most perplexing cases where each twist and turn is more baffling than the last. With riveting storytelling and detailed analysis, Foul Play brings the unsolved and unexplained to life, captivating your imagination. 
Listen to Foul Play Crime Series now, where every story is a puzzle waiting to be solved. We are back, and before I get to our money tip of the week, two reminders. First of all, if you are not getting the Her Money newsletter, please subscribe. We push out a lot of really important information for you and your wallet every single week. All you have to do is go to hermoney.com slash subscribe, give us your email address, and we'll start sending it your way. And if you haven't checked out our new podcast yet, it's called How She Does It. It's hosted by the fantastic Karen Feinerman, who you see on TV. She's got great cocktail party style conversations going with lots of impressive female leaders. They're digging into topics like love and money and power. It's a podcast that I know you're going to really enjoy, particularly if you're a regular listener to this one. All right, so here's your tip of the week. With inflation putting a strain on budgets, we know that more homeowners are looking for ways to cut costs. And one way we see them doing that is by raising the deductible on their homeowner's insurance. That's the amount you got to pay out of pocket before your insurance kicks in. And there's a reason they're doing this. Boosting a deductible is one of the things that homeowners can do reliably to reduce their premiums. Just to put it in perspective, raising your deductible from $500 to $1,000 can cut the cost of your insurance by as much as 6%. But before you do this, there are a few things to consider. Most importantly, you have to make sure that you are prepared to actually take on the upfront expense of a homeowner's claim should it arise. For example, if you've got a $5,000 deductible and your home gets $4,500 in hurricane damage, you're going to have to pay for those repairs out of pocket. And if you're looking for other ways to balance your household spending, my coaching program, Finance Fix, can help you build a spending plan that you'll stick to. We are seeing our participants through the eight-week program stash away about $1,500 on average in found money. Our next session kicks off next week, November 2nd. We would love to see you there. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Matt Abrahams for his advice on speaking confidently in any situation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.